You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. And this is Seba Hassan. Um, Osma, do you want to tell us about how your week went at H in H Town with all of your home people? Um, getting back home is always really wonderful. It's bittersweet because now a lot of the elders in my family are aging. So that was the bittersweet part or the bitter part. And the sweet part was, of course, our meet and greet to meet our audience members, recruit them. And we just had a fabulous time and cannot wait to meet our audience members soon in LA. Zeba, do you want to tell them about that and then tell everybody how your week went? So we are going to be, are we announcing our birthday, our anniversary celebration there? If you want to, you're the boss of that. We are announcing, it's our third anniversary and it happens to be Quad M in LA. And what better way to celebrate it than to go to Los Angeles? I'm going from the East Coast to the West Coast and I will be there with my partner and co-host in person, which we never, never are. Um, so we'll be recording. Mm-hmm. We have a booth at, at Quad M. For the, so, so for those of people that are interested in, in the area, please come and join us. We'll probably be posting that on all our social media channels. And then we're going to be having a private event to celebrate our anniversary. Who would have thought? Slumber party. Mock slumber party. Because, girl, <laughs> you know, I go to bed early and I'll be three hours yeah. ahead of y'all. But... Um, the reality of this situation is we didn't think we were going to, maybe I didn't think, but Uzma always. Yeah, you didn't us. think. I was sure. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and we are like, how many episodes in now? Three over 150. Years, over 150, three years mm-hmm. later, we're going strong. Um, and that's all through the support of you all. So we are very, very thankful and cannot wait to see you guys. And quite frankly, it's been super dark here on the East Coast. So I'm just looking forward to some LA Times. Um, ooh, L.A. Times. Isn't that like a show or I think it's like a it's a newspaper. It's a newspaper. I'm like L.A. <laughs> Times. What time of the day it is? Oh, my God. I need some sunlight. Well, how um, was your week with the kids? You know, I love, love, love being with my kids. You know, you know how that is like the good, the bad, the ugly. I am in it for the ride. But it's so fun because now I'm really watching my younger two kind of morph into these like funny tween like characters um because for years actually until last year sadly we were calling them the babies because when you have the two sets right when you have these super older kids and these super they they're literally the babies except my 11 year old is almost as tall as me and he's starting to get one of those like little mustache thingies peach peach (laughs) and i'm like he is not he finally said to me the other day mama you cannot call me the baby anymore and I was like oh my god you're right but it's so fun watching them evolve into who they are so by God's grace I'm super super lucky alhamdulillah that's awesome that's awesome 
So I am really excited because, you know, February is one of my favorite months and we are continuing our detoxifying Muslim sex series. But in today's guest is Megan Wyatt. She is a speaker, trainer, author, and personal development relationship coach. She is a multi-level certified strategic interventionist through the Robbins Medane Center for Strategic Intervention. Her training inspired her to develop unique programs and content for a Muslim community in the areas of Islamic personality personal development, premarital and postmarital stages of relationship. We all need help with that. If you're a wife, uh, wives of Jenna fan, guess what, guys? We have her. That's all <laughs> Megan. She has been coaching and teaching Muslims since t- 2007. She is a wife and homeschooling mother of four children. You know, we have the, the magic four, number. The magic the number, magic mashallah. Number. And she's residing in Southern California, so hopefully we'll see her at <gasps> we'll Quad get to see M. her, inshallah. Welcome, Welcome, Megan Wyatt. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I already have my ticket to Quad M. You are going to be Yay! in my backyard. So I'm going to get to see you there. We are so excited. excited. I kind of want to buy their VIP ticket because it sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) I got got a VIP ticket because I was like, I want all the gifts. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Lots of gifts happening there, including from us. Make sure you pack some really cute PJs because you're going to be invited to our mock slumber party. Oh, I'm totally excited to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll celebrate the birthday together. Okay. Um, Tell us a little bit, um, whatever you're comfortable sharing uh, about your mommying story and your mommying philosophy. My mommying story. Can you tell me a little bit more about that question? What does that mean? Usually people tell us a little bit about their kids. Oh, okay, sure. Well, it's like she said, I have four, but it's sort of a correction because I no longer homeschool the other two because one's a sophomore in college, my eldest daughter, and my son, my, my elder son is graduating senior this year. Um, so I'm not homeschooling those two, but they were homeschooled. And then I have two younger ones, my 10-year-old and my 7-year-old. Mm-hmm. And um, gosh, momming philosophy. I feel like one of the things I've tried to focus on through all of these years, number one was just always being present with my kids. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed early on how many different ways we you know, can distract ourselves and not be present. So being mm-hmm. present is something that I've tried to focus on a lot with my kids. So we don't ever have any like you know, phones on our tables or in with each other when we're around each other, always being engaged. That's always been really important to me. And I think second philosophy is try to make Islam an organic way of life. Um, yes. Not like Islam is for like Sunday school or a certain halakha, but right. like we, our goal is to try to live Islam and, you know, make the learning organic. So that's, that's what I've always tried to do and just sort of infuse Islam into everything that we do one way or another in a way that's where we're actually like living and thriving inshallah that's the goal um but also remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the process I love it I love it and that it sounds very general and hard to do to incorporate Islam into your everyday living but honestly there's you know there's probably a dozen opportunities to do it by lunchtime like really, really, honestly, by the time the her hits, like you've already accomplished like a dozen times, you've mentioned Allah to the kids or been like, remember to say Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, all of that. Yeah. So um, use those opportunities, I guess, to get the little brownie points that we're trying to accumulate on our path, inshallah, to Jannah. So um, do you mind telling us a little bit about your family background? And for anybody who has no idea what Wives of Jannah is, uh, what led you to create that? Sure. Family background. I am born and raised in Ohio. 
So I'm a Midwest girl and living in California. And I say, I think my DNA evolved because I no longer can handle 50 <laughs> degree days here. Yeah. Um, we've been freezing. We're actually in a heat wave this week, but we've all been freezing and it's like 48 in the morning and that is really freezing. tough. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. I concur. My Ohio family members and everyone else and my friends in Toronto like and wimp. Uh, yeah, the UK, <laughs> I mean, everyone's laughing at us. So, um, so yeah, I'm originally from the Midwest and I grew up in Ohio and, um, both of my parents have passed away. So my mom passed away most recently during the pandemic actually. So I don't have them there anymore, but my brother still lives there and, uh, some of my other family members. Yeah, and so, yeah, so that's where I'm from and, uh, just a hardworking family. I grew up in the Midwest and I'm a kid of the eighties. So, you know, yeah, there you go. Like yeah. Tube socks and headbands. Yeah, you name absolutely. it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have you ever by any chance heard that song called 1980 something by Kareem Salama? Oh, no. oh, no. Really? No, I haven't heard. And I love Kareem Salama. You I haven't? haven't listened to one of his songs in so long. So my brother, like at some point decided he liked country music, which is not something we grew up with. I always I liked. know. <laughs> Me somehow. too. I was like so averse. Somewhat, yeah, somehow. Yeah. from Texas. So then I found out, you know, when you're trying to like find different ways to like just connect with your family and their interests. And I find out there's this Egyptian Muslim guy who's <laughs> country a country singer. singer. And I'm like, my brain's like, what's happening? Um, I know. Anyway, he has a song called like 1980 something and it's all about the 1980s and you might find it That's so kind of funny. I remember mind blown the first time I saw him live and I heard him live and I was just like, this is, I mean, come on, a Muslim country singer? And Egyptian. <laughs> awesome. And like, if you put him over here, you're like, yeah, Arab guy. And you put him over here and you're like, what's happening? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My brother's like, We've he's had great. a Libyan from like Alabama on this, on the podcast too. So it's just like mind blow every single time. It's so funny. Yeah. So. Um, but can you dive into a little bit about Wives of Jenna? Absolutely. So um, Wives of Jenna, I think one of my main inspirations to create that, there's a couple of things. And one of them is, if you kind of go back in time as to like, where did this even become a passion? When I became, so I converted to Islam when I was 19 as a college student. And so um, this is like right pre 9-11, you know, time period. Mm -hmm. Um, but as I, as I started learning more about Islam and then eventually, you know, started going to halakhas and sisters groups, of course, the topic of marriage is going to come up. And I remember there's this very specific uh, event that I had gone to, and it was like this sister's halakha when I was living in Texas, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, But I remember that there was this book that they were passing around, and the wife was reading like a passage from this book. Uh, and... What she read, I remember to this day just kind of freezing. And I had this moment where I was like, it's a very vulnerable thing. And I like to share it because I think sometimes people can misunderstand what I'm saying. But I think a lot of us have had it where it's kind of like, if that's Islam, I'm not sure. You just kind of mm -hmm. had this moment, right? And it's not, has yeah. nothing to do with like, I'm doubting Allah is one. And it's not the theology. It's just, it's just this moment, this knee jerk reaction of like, is that, yeah. And there was this moment because I'm thinking, gosh, what she just read sounds so awfully humiliating. Yes. And I thought, that doesn't sound like love or respect. And like all of the things that I am coming to. Islam, first of all, with my own understanding of marriage and love, but then even, you know, you learn the ayah in the Quran where Allah says that he sends down mawadda rahmah, like this love and mercy. He wants that to be between a husband and a wife so they can have sakina, tranquility. So I'm like, love, mercy, tranquility, that's not going to work. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> and I remember just listening to her and I remember freezing and thinking, I just, I just have one of those private internal moments. Like this, this kind of a fitna for me, like, is this, is this, is this what it is this what it means to be a Muslim wife? And it was like a moment of kind of panic. And An I epiphany. think 
Yeah. Well, if anything, I think a lot of us go through those, right? Where you, yeah, you, you believe and everything, but then somebody's presenting something to you. And we got to figure out if that thing that's being presented, especially coming as a convert, you have yes. to evaluate, is this hard for me because I just have a lot of stuff I need to unlearn or undo? Yes. Or is this hard for me because something's wrong? Yeah. yeah. And in those early days, I probably spent more time doubting myself because I'm new and I'm trying to figure it out. And at this point, you know, no, I don't know if you've ever heard like, uh, Anse Tamara Gray. One of the things that I love about Anse Tamara, she's always saying, you know, heed your healthy heart. And especially because yes. she speaks to a lot of us converts, she'll say that like, check in with your healthy heart, your heart brought you here. Like don't. So anyway, all that self doubt, but that's kind of where the seed was planted. And then from there, I had already had a passion for the topic of women in Islam. I did a degree in Middle Eastern studies. So I was already familiar with like Arab women writers and feminism in the Muslim world and just some of the things that had happened. And so this topic was of great interest to me. And at one point, once I become a coach and I start figuring out like where, where are my passions lying, I realize that's all coming together. The topic of women, the, the, the changes of things that I had learned throughout history and being Muslim and being a wife and wanting to figure out how do I do this? You know, my ultimate goal is to please Allah. My ultimate goal is that this is part of the ibadah and why I'm alive. And how can I do this? And then how can I share that journey with everyone else and start also correcting some of these really wrong yes. cultural narratives that are being presented as the deen and really they are far from it. Oh my gosh, I love, love, love hearing that. And um, the fact that you're, you're mentoring Anse Tamagre, we love her. We're one huge fans. Oh, bless She's her. been on here before too. Yeah. We just absolutely adore her. So, you know, you often refer, like we refer often to like sexual sunnah. And a lot of the our audience happens to not be Muslim, believe it or not, for their benefit awesome. and Welcome. for those of us like myself that are too shy to admit what we do not know. Would you kind of list a couple of important sexual sunnahs as well as the spiritual wisdom and science uh, behind that? Okay, well, I can share some of the things that have been very important to me, and you can let me know if I'm if I'm hitting what you're hoping to hear in that regard. Um, I think first off, before we talk about kind of the concept of sunnah, rather than being the way that the Prophet Muhammad taught us, may peace and blessings be upon him, so is I like to just start off with the idea that Islam is what we call sex positive, and by mm -hmm. that, that we already start from a platform where sex is not seen as something bad and dirty and shameful and a thing not to be discussed. Um, or something that we, you know, it's, it's, it's barely acknowledged as a reality. And I think from the get-go, that's very surprising. Um, definitely, I would say for those who are not of our faith community, because mm -hmm. of how things look on the outside with sort of the modesty and the different versions of that around the Muslim world, that it's like, oh, everything about this is shameful. And on the contrary, Islam is very sex positive and I think very healthy and comes with a very healthy approach to, to intimacy and into that side of relationships. And I remember when I had done some, just as a contrast, some research of, you know, growing up, I mean, I grew up Catholic, for example, and just kind of researching some of the things that the church used to teach. And, you know, the idea that like it was considered almost sinful if you had the lights mm -hmm. on or that you actually experienced pleasure because, yeah. and, and this was, I'm not an expert in that background. So I don't know, you know, how much of this, where, where these teachings came from, but I know that that was something understood and discussed and the idea that sex could be even something pleasurable was kind of nearing sin. And we're talking about mm -hmm. between a married couple. We're not talking about yeah. extramarital experiences. So I feel like what it, what a stark difference from the get-go is that Islam is sex positive. This is a positive, healthy, natural, normal thing. And the belief that God created us specifically with these desires 
and a way to fulfill them already, already negates sort of all this, this dark cloud that's around the topic. So I, I love to start there um, because, well, we can maybe get into that because that's unfortunately not how it's presented, I think, for a lot of people mm-hmm. growing up in the Muslim community. Um, one of the things that I think is beautiful and one of the things that I often try to differentiate, um, I often talk a lot in my work into others that sex is not supposed to be something just biological. Yeah. You know, it's not just a process of discharging energy. You know, it's meant to be something that is greater than that. And so there is the physical component, but there's also the emotional component, which is something that a lot of couples miss. But there's also the spiritual component. People are like, well, how can that be spiritual? I'm like, well, right from the beginning, you know, for example, if a couple is going to engage in sexual intercourse, there is a dot to be made. And right. My Arabic is not, I'm not going to try and give it to you (laughs) in Arabic. We'll provide it in the show notes. Perfect. Put in the show notes. Yes, yes. But that dua basically asking Allah to protect both of you from shaitan, from the devil. And from the beginning, if you think for a minute about all the ways that that sexual experience between a husband and wife can become tainted with something else, thoughts and things that are coming from the outside world, right from the beginning, you're saying, you're not just being like, let's just close off our minds and meditate. You're literally asking God, like, can you keep shaitan away from us? And if we had children from this, can you also protect them from the influence? I find that to be such a beautiful example of how it's not just biology. And it's mm-hmm. also not some super like, what's the word? Devoid of all Carl. the other things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's this beautiful blend. Um, mm-hmm. And so that being of the sunnah is to make this dua, you know, and have the man lead the way in that. And I think fulfills a lot that's of, of his role in protecting the family and protecting this space. So I think that that's a beautiful example. Um, one of the ones that is often discussed from teachers, but not widely enough, is the idea that a woman is supposed to be satisfied before her husband. Mm-hmm. And if she can't be, because, you know, stuff happens, that she at least is satisfied at some point. And the, a lot of the teachers that will discuss this is based on a hadith. And the hadith itself, everyone will say, is kind of weak um, in itself of its reference. But everyone says, but this, the meaning is sound. And that being that basically if a man, a man should t- satisfy his wife first. He should make sure that she experiences sexual satisfaction. And if there is one thing that so many women are suffering from, it is that they're not experiencing that. And they have no idea what that's going to look like. And their husband's either don't know to care, don't know, they they don't communicate, right? There's no conversation. And so the idea that it's a woman's right to have access to her husband, I think is another example of that sexual sunnah, as you would call it, you know, that she matters and her being, having her needs met is like her right. We, we as Muslim women hear a lot about men and their rights, but we don't have enough of a conversation about women and regularly, it's interesting how much I hear from women who this is not happening for them. Um, sure. And I think the last one for the ones that I think are special to me, it's not about sex itself per se, but it's we have this beautiful narration of one of the ways that we know how to do ghusl, the shower we take after we you know, engage in sexual intimacy, is you know we shower and we wash our body. And the way we know how to do that is because the wife of the Prophet, Salaam Aisha, was with the Prophet Muhammad and they did ghusl together and she saw how he did ghusl and she told us how to do it because she saw him do it. And a lot of people stop there. They're like, oh yes, we know the fiqh, the legality of how to do it because Aisha told us. I'm like, wait, Mm -hmm. 
hold on a second. We're not just getting we're not just getting a legalistic explanation of whistle. We're getting a moment. Mm-hmm. We're getting that one of the sweet spots after intimacy is that time afterward, you know, and that a couple has been together and now there's that space afterward before life happens, before the kids bang at the door, before someone's <laughs> got to go to work, you know. In this case, the prophet Sallallahu has to go and deal with who knows how Everything. many major issues. Yeah. And I've always stopped and said, let's look at this tender moment of him taking time with his wife and they're they're washing up today, we'd say, where they're just taking a shower together. Um, but I, I, I look at these moments and I think, what a beautiful example. He doesn't just finish and leave her. No, they're actually no, going to shower together and I'm sure they're having conversation. And of course, because organic learning was the way things happened at that time, she's also learning how, you know, or being reminded how to do this and shares it with us later. But the idea of just continuing to share that space and even the idea that that space between a couple, whether it's not being dressed or being around each other, it's a very special, very private space. But it's something that I see is very much guarded and protected in the sunnah itself. I love all of those examples, you know, because they're all like practical adult matters. Um, And they weren't like the explicit stuff that we've been talking about all month. So, which is also necessary, <laughs> but this is important because this is the foundation this of all is, of the explicit my, fun my stuff. Alley. Yeah. Like, this is up Zeba's alley completely. Alley. She's like, I, I can have this conversation. Um, but you mentioned <laughs> the things that you hear from some of your clients. Yeah. Um, but, you know, early, I feel like early on in Muslim couples relationships and then late stage. So late stage, I think, regardless of your religion, everybody has. But for us in particular, it's a little hard because a lot of us come to the come to sex and intimacy with not a lot of experience. Right. So what pitfalls do you see happening at those uh, two ends of the spectrum for couples? All right. So for those who are kind of new and I'm going to put them in the like one to three year category, if you will, kind of a a range there. That sounds appropriate to me. Yeah. Yeah, Just like the first few years. In some cases, one to six, you know. (laughs) Sure. Um, But like the one to three years, I mean, obviously there's the first year everybody talks about being hard as you're getting to know each other, adjusting to living with a human. Mm -hmm. Somebody has their toothbrush next to your toothbrush, you know, all those things that you've got to adjust to. Right. Um, but I think that interestingly enough, one of the, there, there's, a, there's a number of them, but one of the, this can be kind of complicated because in a way, part of the challenges that they're facing is because of these other bigger issues, right? How sex has been taught growing up, where they got their exposure from, was there a positive, you know, sex positive dialogue in the home around this topic or was all the education coming from YouTube um, or mm. pornography or, you know, what other people were saying? So really what's happening, just like in marriage in general, everybody arrives with a set of baggage, you know, and you've got them all sitting next to you and he's got him his, his sitting next to him. And now we got to figure out what to do with the baggage. Some of it we're going to keep, some of it we got to get rid of, and some of it needs time to sort. So really when it comes to the sexual experience of a couple, it's going to come down to that first and foremost, right? How do they each arrive understanding sex itself? How have they understood their their role as a male or as a female? So really their belief system is very important when it comes to this space. And sometimes people are always asking, is there a way that we can figure this out before marriage? And this is a difficult one because we tend to not, I mean... How exactly do you have a conversation about sex, for example, with someone that's never had it, right? Exactly. There's yeah. no, there's no way to, for someone to say, 
you know, well, how often are you going to be interested or how, how frequent do you think this is going to happen? I mean, these kinds of questions, and these are things I've heard from men, by the way, asking, well, why can't we ask women when we're getting to know them, how frequent they think they want to have sex? Cause I want a woman that wants sex a lot. And I'm like, how are you going to ask that question to someone that has no experience? And even if somebody has experience, (laughs) yeah. And even if somebody has experience, how are they going to answer that question? until they see what you're like. And how you treat mm-hmm. them and how you engage with them. So there's like these like, yeah, like there's these kind of silly ideas around like frequency and numbers and getting married with this in their head. And this is where I think that first challenge comes in where I'm like, sex isn't just biological. We're two human mm-hmm. beings. You've got the spiritual, emotional, physical component, the psychological component. Those are now meeting. How do we navigate this? And really for a new couple, like anything else, the, the greater challenge is going to be, can you communicate around it? Can you talk about it? Can you actually say like, hey, so I was kind of hoping this would happen less, happen more, be different. How do we talk about it? So really the better, you know, a newly married couple can learn how to share their feelings and their thoughts, the better this is going to go. For those that are already struggling to express vulnerability uh, of any kind, you know, kind of opening up and sharing, then this is going to be even more difficult for them. Because you're taking something that's extremely personal, extremely sensitive, and on top of that, you've got the inability to be vulnerable or share or talk about something, it can be hard. So even though it seems like we should just focus on, you know, teaching people how to engage in in sex to have a satisfying sex life, I often go, I think it's over here first. I think we got to understand how to communicate and talk with each other so that you can build, whether it's a a satisfying sex life, great communication, Mm -hmm. an excellent balance in the home of your expectations of free time and division of labor. I see a lot of it comes back to being able to communicate well. And with Mm -hmm. that, I often tell people that are not married yet or those newly married, and please don't freak out about that either because communication skills are something you learn with practice. Like I, I love that there's an emphasis these days on getting to know yourself better before marriage. We're having more premarital conversation. I like that. And I'm 42 years old and I'm still getting to know myself better and I'm still figuring out my stuff. Right. So I feel like we have this idea that we want to save people from pain and difficulty, but we also have to accept that part of the journey is, <laughs> is kind of fumbling your way through figuring it out. So the better yeah. you can practice communication with yourself before you're married, knowing what you want, knowing what you're feeling, knowing what makes you anxious, knowing what makes you feel insecure, knowing what makes you happy and joyful, the better you're going to do at that. But there is going to be that adjustment. So that's kind of where I see the couples in the beginning. When it comes to their beliefs, whether it's newlyweds or beyond, their beliefs about sex itself is like the next big kind of thing that we have to handle. And so like I said, are they ex- what are they exposed to? What's the programming that they come with? That's really going to be a key part in here. So if the programming that you come with is sex is basically bad, dirty, and shameful, and that you've been raised mm-hmm. with that your whole life, not just hot on, but it's bad and it's dirty and everything about it is bad and dirty. And then it's suddenly like a woman gets married and you're like, do it all the time. She's like, but yeah. I've spent my whole life, right? So like, the like, angels will curse you all night. Yeah. Yeah. I have, an, e- I have an e-book. Husband, yeah. I have an e-book on that one. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's called, will the angels curse me? I've actually addressed that one head on. So yeah. yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I you, you get married and, and now it's like, all of a sudden, you're supposed to love this and be engaged and excited, but you've got this whole barrier in your head. So we've got a lot. We really have to encourage couples to learn how to kind of explore their their, their programming and where do their ideas come from. Um, so that's kind of where I start with that. And so the belief system will permeate however many years the you're married. The entire duration. Yeah, mm-hmm. until you handle it, until you talk about it. 
world where productivity and success are the hot topics of discussion, but patriarchal systems are still commonplace, it's both refreshing and inspiring to see a woman of color take on the task of re-examining what it means to be productive and successful, while also starting a conversation around a topic that has traditionally been domineered by old white men. The Genius Illuminated podcast focuses on going deeper into what it means to be successful and proposes that we all need to access our genius. And it's done through carefully crafted interviews with women. Tune into season one of the Genius Illuminated podcast, which drops every Wednesday from February 2nd until March 2nd. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, or at www.fireflystrategies.com and click on the Genius Illuminated podcast tab. Halal CBD is a company offering 100% halal certified products that you can eat or just use topically like tinctures and lotions. They're certified by the internationally accredited American Halal Foundation and their products are American grown and made as well as cruelty, gluten, paraben, and 100% THC free. To meet your healthcare goals with your doctor, you don't have to compromise your spiritual goals after all. Check out halalcbd.io online for a limited supply of free samples today. Obviously, we're coming at this, at least I am from a mom perspective, and it sounds like we have older kids about to like kind of go into that journey. What are some things that we can do to kind of help them prepare for the sex positive attitude? Um you know, while they're looking for a spouse or right after they found a spouse, what are some things we as parents or mothers specifically can help our children with so that they don't have these typical hangups that maybe we have inherited? Sure. And I, I almost, in my own personal opinion, I almost want to separate that depending if you have boys or girls, because yeah, I, I, I think because we have to keep in mind the greater cultural messaging that each gender is getting whether directly or indirectly, it makes a difference. Like for men, when I'm talking to single men, for example, one of the things that I'm often trying to remind them of, like I feel like men approach marriage, for example, with the idea of what am I going to get? Women Mm -hmm. often approach marriage of what can I give? So women are focused on being a good wife and doing it right and getting accepted, right? The woman wants to be chosen and accepted. And so they kind of come with like what they're going to give and how they're going to take care of their husband and kind of selling themselves on what they're giving. And the men often come aside from maybe financially proving their stability, their their psychology is often what they're going to get. Not enough people are preparing men to understand what leadership means. And this, this applies everywhere. So I'm like, I'll often ask men that I work with in couples, especially those in different fields of business. Have you ever taken a leadership training course? Or have you ever read famous leadership books? Recently, we have like uh, Simon Sinek, is that how you name? You've got the old classic John Maxwell's. When you read and listen to any leadership training, it's always like the servant leadership model, right? That a manager manages ideas, a leader serves people and works with people. And it's all about how you guide them and raise them up and work as it. There's so many beautiful things. I'm like, that's a husband in a son. Mm-hmm. So like the servant model comes that the husband isn't there to get from his wife. Like, what? I owe my rights. And that's unfortunately the psychology they have. And they bring that into the bedroom as well. They bring into the topic of sex. This is my right. This is what I want. This is what I owe. The idea of like, what are you giving? What are you nurturing? What are you building? How are you taking care of? Is missing from the conversation. So I feel like with boys, it's raising them into young men to understand when you are a husband or a father, 
what does it mean to be a leader? And a leader's yes. first, I mean, we don't see like the beautiful thing about the Prophet is unlike most leaders of the world, when they become a leader, they sit on thrones, people feed them food, they order servants around, right? That's, that's that, I call, if we want to call it like a toxic idea of a leader, that's that. But the prophet was the opposite. Yeah. He was always doing everything that he expected anyone else to do and then more and then some on himself. So he really is the ultimate model in even just the character type of who he, we saw him being. So I feel like a boy needs that. He needs to understand that the more he has, the more responsible he is. And if you have a man, like we're going to bring it back to your topic of like of sex, of understanding that his goal is to focus first on what he can give, his wife's going to be happy because he's going to be curious yeah. about her, interested in her, figuring out, are you satisfied? Is there something I need to change? He's going to be open to her influence and suggestions. But the man who's focused on my rights, what you're giving me, he's not going to engage in that very much. Yeah. So I, I feel like, with, yeah. And then with girls on the other side, again, having worked with women as adult wives, I see it the other way is that women need to understand that like a hundred percent, I say as, as, as the founder of Wives of Jannah, like the number one goal is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, after that, it would be amazing if you could be a fantastic wife that your husband loves and thinks you're amazing. And one of the inspirations behind that was that, you know, when there, there's the hadith that when a wife dies and her husband's pleased with her, she goes to Jannah. That's beautiful. To me, that was like, what an honor that Allah gives the wife. This is such a noble role. This is such so beautiful that when you die in your husband, like we all are striving for Jannah, right? We're like, Jannah, Allah forgive us, right? But if you've just like died and your husband's pleased with you, that's enough for Jannah. SubhanAllah. I think that's beautiful. But with that comes the need for women to understand that you don't sacrifice your well-being mm -hmm. in the hopes of getting his approval because right, unfortunately, right. women see it the other way. They also will say, does that mean if he's not happy with me, he gets to send me to hell? And I'm like, no, that's not in the hadith. <laughs> <laughs> and usually a woman asking that kind of a question, unfortunately, is probably being emotionally abused in some capacity. Yes. And so I'm like, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. He doesn't, he doesn't get that power. He gets the power to send you to Jannah, but not the other way. You know, like we kind of block mm -hmm. that. But I feel like women need to be raised that, yes, you should become the best wife, best human being, everything you can, but know where you are going beyond your limits and you're actually harming yourself. Because yes. I see too yes. many women caught up in that cycle of, you know, I've extended myself and now it's 10 years into marriage. They're full of resentment, anger, hurt. They're depressed. They have lost themselves. And it's because they've been chasing his approval. But his approval is just, it's its like the goal always moves. There's no way to get this. Yeah. Absolutely. So I feel like... Yeah. Where does that all come back into your question? Again, if you notice, I've gone bigger before we've gone, you know, we've done the macro because the macro is so important. And then when you bring yeah, it back totally to sex, agree. women need to know how their body works. Yeah. They need to already from the time a girl gets a period, she needs to know that she's not dirty and impure in that kind of way that she's disgusting. Yes. We don't yeah. cover to cover our shame, you know, yes. all of these things. And so that she needs to know that this is a natural part of her body and she also deserves to enjoy it just like guys. So I feel like these macro conversations are sort of as we raise our children or communicate in our communities, we want that macro to be positive. And I think then it naturally will filter down, inshallah, to, you know, the direct conversation. So Allahu Adam, this is kind of my perspective. I love that. I think um, we're seeing a lot more of, you know, everything that you're speaking right now is very sex positive. And it is in our, you know, ancient manuscripts, well, ancient, like centuries old <laughs> Uh, Muslim scholars have talked very openly about sex. And then, you know, 
talking about macros. We've mentioned it on this podcast. We mention it every year in February at some point. You know, when the colonizers came, they took our traditions from us. And we ended up absorbing Western European, you know, disgust of women, sex, our bodies, and all of that. Because we believe Allah created us perfectly. We believe Allah created us without sin. We believe Allah created us beautiful, you know? Um, So all of that sex positivity, I think, is from our tradition. And we've tried through every episode to bring that to our audience. And we're really happy that we feel safe doing it because the American Muslim community seems to be talking about it more openly, um, more lovingly. And maybe in the next generation or two, that cultural baggage, that colonized mentality about sex is bad is going to go away. I'm hoping, inshallah. You know, Um, but I did want to touch on a a very important topic that we often do get DMs about. And I'm sure you hear this from many clients, porn and marriages. It is a problem. Um, We all know somebody who's suffering because of it. So can you talk about um, porn and its role in Muslim marriages? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, yes, it is something that is quite prevalent in our community from my experience. Um, You know, Muslims are like any other human being, you know, like we're just people. And so whatever's plaguing the greater society can also plague us too, especially when we are, I guess, engaged in the greater society by choice, you know, whether that's where you live, but it's also what you choose to consume online, what you look at, what you watch, you know, all of these things that are out there. And yes, it is a major issue. Um, my husband is the founder of purifyyourgaze.com. So that is the, you know, it is for Muslims struggling with sex addiction. So this is a conversation he and I have been having for a really long time. And of course, it also filters in. People don't even know that connection that I have. But of course, it comes up a lot. And one of the, the, the greater challenges that I have in the conversation when I'm working with women, when I'm working with the couples, um, I just had a couple yesterday that this is actually the main issue. Uh, that's impacting them is a couple of things. And one of them is, I think sometimes people get caught up on the fact that men are looking, there are women that are participating, but it is still predominantly a male challenge. I would say there's definitely women who I work with that are looking at pornography, but the majority is still men. Um, And that is still where the majority issue lies. And one of the challenges is that we kind of get hung up on talking about how they're looking at haram and they're looking at other women and this is wrong. And that is all absolutely true. But when it comes to the relationship, where is the actual problem? And so I kind of like to open this up a little. If you're not Muslim, so for us, we're like, that's haram, that's forbidden. You're not supposed to look at another woman that's not your wife. Right. But what right. about people who aren't Muslim and they do not have these, uh, you know, these moral guidelines that they adhere to? Why is it a problem for them? And so the reason that I try to expand the conversation is to help people start to understand it's because it's not just what that person's looking at that's the problem. When a person is regularly engaged in pornography, they are not able to experience emotional intimacy because the the, the reason that they're using pornography on a consistent, we're talking like consistent, we're talking about a problem, not somebody that's all at once. Pathologic. Yeah. Is because that's a way for them to cope with life. It is like doing drugs. It is like drinking alcohol. It is like people with gambling addictions. Those addictive behaviors, process addictions, they fall into the same category as all these other things. Why Mm -hmm. is that person addicted to whatever it is? Because they're trying to manage life 
and they're doing it in a way that's unhealthy and they're doing it in the, one of the ways that brings them relief or comfort or significance or control or whatever it is that they're seeking. Well, when a person is regularly engaged in numbing out their emotions, one of the most, you know, the, the bigger tragedies beyond all of that is you also lose out on joy and happiness and love and presence and intimacy. That sakina, that tranquility we talk about, all of that. That person is no longer able to experience all the love coming from their wife, all that goodness, all that giving, everything, because they are numbed out as a person. So what happens is it's not just that the man is looking at other things. Oftentimes, women don't know what's wrong. They just know that their husbands don't desire them. They don't seem to compliment and pay much attention to them. They feel this distance, but they don't know what it is. They don't feel good enough, but they can't figure out what it is. When they finally find out, for example, they, some, some kind of discovery comes out, things start to fall into place. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Well, now I understand because he's been so busy focused on this you know, porn addiction that he's, he really hasn't been interested in me, paying attention to me, present with me. And she kind of gets some relief in that regard. But the mm-hmm. other place that it pops up is, you know, unfortunately for men really deep into this stuff, is the way they look at their wives. Some of them literally will say, you don't, you know, you put on weight or you're not this or your your thighs are this or your stomach. They start comparing them to people they're looking at online and the women don't know what's happening. They yeah. just know that they're never enough. And again, what have we just destroyed? The love, the mercy, the sakina, the tranquility, the three things the Quran emphasizes, gone. So we have that. And the last one you talked about like new couples is that uh, unfortunately men come in with the worst programming about what sex is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And they don't know, have any understanding of female anatomy. They don't have any understanding of what actually turns a woman on. They have no understanding of how the female body works. They have no idea. And even women, by the way, most women don't realize that a good majority of women never climax through intercourse. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I don't think what the porn world's probably going to show you, right? Yeah. Everything a man does is amazing, apparently. Um, like, I've, yeah. I've never watched it, but this is what I've learned. Um, yeah. to, you know, this is the narrative, right? So they come in with all this programming, and then either they, they blame their wives, or the wives feel like they're not measuring up, and they don't know what's wrong with them. Right. So all these dynamics, they are just destroying people. It's not just destroying, like, the relationship. It's, it's, it's destroying, like, the individual's. The woman who feels she's never enough. And I tell you one of the most heartbreaking things that I hear is when a woman comes in and thinks it's her fault because either there was there was some advice that went around for a while from some sheikh, I don't know, in another language, it was getting translated. And a woman called in and was saying that her husband's looking at porn and this and that. And he's like, you know, gonna he cheated on her with like escorts and things like that. Oh, no. Um. And the advice was like, have sex with him so much, she's too tired to do anything else. Um, and I heard that and I thought, I, I just, my that, that would be one of those. advice a man would give. <laughs> it, well, no, it's not advice a man would give. That's advice from a man who is not refined, emotionally intelligent yeah. and unloving. I'll even clarify that. I, I was so, that was another freeze moment. I was like, what? what? Did I just hear that? <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, like if if you find out like, one of the unfortunate impacts of like porn is it's not just online. People who stay in it long enough, unfortunately, eventually that's not enough. And that's where they end up offline. So yeah. we have a real problem uh, going on, like escort services and you know, prostitution and things like that. Yes. Male protectus. Um, but with mm-hmm. that is, you know, when, when the wife finally cries and tells her family or she talks to her in-laws or whatever, advice is the same. Like, well, are you, are you, are you satisfying him? Mm-hmm. Are you forcing him to go this way? And sometimes even the men themselves will buy into that. 
oh, I have a high sex drive and that's why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. So what's happened is like, we're not actually talking about the problem. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're just destroying this. We're destroying a marriage. We're destroying a person. And we're not talking about what the real issue is. This is not the reason why the man's at an escort service. This isn't the reason why he's online. So it is a big problem. And it's one of the things that like when um, Zeba was asking about having conversations, this is one you can't miss with your kids. You have to talk about it with your kids. Oh, yeah. You have to start raising the understanding. Hey, by the way, there's a world out there at your fingertips and you might think it's interesting or exciting. And by the way, it probably could be, but let me tell you all of the things that will harm you in the long run. If you go down that path, it's, yeah. it has to be a conversation because otherwise it just becomes the forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's not just because this is Haram we're saying stop. It's, you don't know what's going to happen if you go down this path. So we have yeah. to have the, the, the courage to have a conversation, even if it feels uncomfortable. And, and by the way, I, little bit by little bit by little bit over time. Yeah. Age-appropriate conversations. Yeah. Like when my son first started looking up, was able to look up stuff on the computer, you know, there were things before we had our blockers on that would pop up. And he was like, why this or why that? And we would be like, oh, you know, it's somebody that is listening to Shaitan. And then as he got older and at this point... We're like, there's this whole world, which is also like, like your AI world, because that's the kind of world that he understands from gaming. And like, it's showing human beings, but in completely unrealistic situations. And all of it is a lie. Like that is not what sex is about. That is not how sex even functionally works. Um, Definitely not how in some cases it works Islamically, like what's uh, permissible and what's not. So, you know. I think he's avoided it. And we monitor like advice, uh, their devices a lot. So he doesn't even have a phone, but I think we're going to get more explicit as he turns 14 this year, enters high school at the end of the year, because goodness knows, you know, when he hangs out with his friends, what he's watching with them and that exposure can happen. I want him to be fortified spiritually, emotionally, to know, okay, I'm going to get up and leave because this is, you know, violence against women happens in these things. So this is not okay. Um, And that's, those are some of the examples that I can think of to have those initial conversations with our children. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this to say, tell us about your coaching programs and what, uh, or who they're good for. Sure. Well, with the Wives of Jenna platform specifically, I do do relationship coaching for wives and couples. Um, I, I, so, so with couples, it depends on what the challenges are. So for example, I have a full stop if I find out that there's any kind of abuse happening. At that point, I always insist um, that somebody works with a therapist and, mm-hmm. and it has to be someone local to them. And I may even continue working with a wife for a while uh, as I kind of transition her to something that I think is bigger than me. Cause sometimes I literally am the first and only person that knows about something someone's going through. So I, I don't just drop them, but I stay with them until I've gotten them with the right services. Um, outside of that, I mean, generally speaking, relationship coaching is either for, you know, you're stuck in a slump and you don't know how to get out of it. Maybe things are good, but you know that they could be a lot better, but something's off. I have a lot of couples who will come in. Sometimes they've had long time challenges and they're finally fed up. And other times, you know, I remember this couple that said to me, like, we've always had a pretty good relationship. And they're like, we suddenly had these huge fights. And we were talking mm-hmm. about divorce. They're like, we don't know what happened. Like, they, they said they got so intense. Like, we've never been like that before. 
So we came in and we worked together to kind of figure out what, what was going on that all of a sudden, like this couple who never had that kind of intensity was going through something big. And then it's like, they're gone. I haven't heard from, you know, every once in a while we check in. So there are people that sometimes want to come because there's just a singular issue that they're really like, we just can't see eye to eye on this. And it is escalating other people. Yeah. It's long-standing relationship challenges. And ultimately my favorite is, um, you know, just it, it's, it's, Everybody always comes in and says, we need to work on communication. That's like, everybody yes. says that. It's kind of a given that we all need to work on communication skills <laughs> always in every capacity. Like I said, the learning is on the ground. But the, the, the joy in that is being able to hear perspectives and say, you know, the good news is you're actually what you're going through is so common. And you might not know that, but it's, it's very, very normal. And the good news is normal means lots of resources available to you, lots of things that we can do with me, with others, with programs. Like, alhamdulillah, there's so many resources. It's just mm -hmm. the first step is obviously getting through the door and being like, I think we could use some help with this. So, yeah. So, I, that is that. I have online programs. And you mentioned the angels topic. Um, I did not release my program yet called Will the Angels Curse Me? But I have an ebook on it. And it addresses that common question around sex that women have. Perfect. Can I ever say no? So I'm going to look up the link for that and put that in our show notes too, so that people have access to it. Because I'm like, of all the sexual uh, hadith to remember, that's what you remember. Like, Isn't that unfortunate? On, yes. Yeah. Yes. It is <laughs> that's so the one we all grow up hearing. And I'm like, man, like, it, it's just so, it, you know, you were mentioning earlier about how uh, the actual problem doesn't get addressed in porn. But what ends up happening is that blame gets deflected on the woman. Yeah. It's always the blame deflecting on the woman, you know? Yeah. And as moms, we already have too much on our plate. I don't need to also be blamed for this. Mm -hmm. So, Well, and you know what? So when it comes to that topic, I'll tell you something really quick. When it comes to, like, the complaint about, about sex and frequency and things like that, not only do women panic about that, but, you know, the other issue is I'm like, well, what about you? Is this, is this something that you're enjoying? You know mm -hmm. how many women are just, their husbands want, their husbands think, their husband, the husband, the husband. I'm like, well, do you enjoy the experience? Oh, me? And I'm like, yeah. Like, what, <laughs> well, you're what, there. <laughs> what is he doing for you? And a lot yeah. of times, interestingly enough, you know, the men are putting on the pressure, putting on the pressure, putting, like I said, he's never shown any curiosity to her. He, he's not, mm -hmm. an, and, and he's like, oh, you don't enjoy this. Why? Like there isn't a conversation. It doesn't even occur to her that maybe she would want to be intimate more often if she knew what was yes. in it for her. Right. But unfortunately, right. most women are like, oh, just another chore. And I'm already tired. I have the kids. I had work. And I'm like, mm, if that's how you feel, that's telling me something's missing for you. And that's not to say that you should want something all the time. Everybody's human. But just I'm mm -hmm. looking at a bigger challenge going, why is there such so much negativity associated with that? That's telling me something else is amiss. Yeah, there's something deep there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Well, I hope a bunch of people sign up with you. And if nothing else, listen to Wives of Jenna. Like I I think I've listened to all of them. My podcast, you mean? Some, your podcast. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um. And that's how I know you. And I've tried to implement a lot of what you say. And it really does make a difference in your marriage because they're just little bite-sized changes that you can make in your relationship. And it, and it does help. So I can't even imagine what one of your coaching programs would offer. So um, Zeba had to leave early to pick up one of her kids. So she apologizes. The, uh, usually we end by getting to know you a little bit better. Okay. And asking you um, some fun rapid-fire questions. So first thing that comes off the top of your head um, we do 
put a little bit of pressure by timing it. So we're going to start <laughs> that. And this is usually what Zeba does. So I'm going to try to do it right. So first question is, uh, what book are you reading now? Oh, what book am I reading right now? Oh, it's called, um, my daughter gave it to me. Everything is fine with, is it Eleanor Oliphant or Oliphant? I don't know how you say yes, her name. Something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. She, I love that. I'm okay. checking out that book. Wonderful. I actually enjoyed that a lot. What was your first job? Hmm. I had a paper route. No way. Oh my yeah. gosh. The good old days when paper was something you could touch. That was like when I was young. Ink. My first That's hired awesome. employee job, I worked in a bagel restaurant from the time I was 15. Bagels. So I went to college. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. What was your favorite subject in school? Anything with literature. Oh, beautiful. If someone were to play you in a movie, who would you want it to be? If someone would play me in a movie? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, who, me? I have no idea how to answer that question right now. <laughs> like the idea that We can skip to the thing. next one while you think about it. If you could spend a day in someone else's shoes, who would it be and why? Oh, these are tough and these are rapid questions. If I could spend <laughs> a day in someone else's shoes, who would it be and why? Oh. It doesn't have to be somebody alive. Oh. Oh, okay. Then you've solved that already. I, I, I would love to spend a, or like a shadow behind like Aisha radiallahu or Khadija radiallahu anha. Like mm -hmm. any of the women of the Sahabiyat, like I would just love to shadow their lives because there's so much of the women's world that we don't know. Yeah. Like I would love to just get into the, the, the village, so to speak, of the women's mm -hmm. life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking uh, Khadija because I'm just like, you know, this wealthy, powerful businesswoman, you know, who was the bomb diggity of Mecca at the time, you know, like she's the female equivalent of the Don. That would have been really awesome. And of course, you know, who she got to marry. So thank you so much for participating. And thank you for coming on to discuss, um, you know, the sunnah of sex with us, because that is ultimately what's important. The fun stuff is the fun stuff, but you know, it's not going to be fun until we start implementing the sunnah and the fiqh of our dean, um, even in the bedroom, because it does tell us what to do there too. So thank you so much. And we'll have uh, links in the show notes for folks to contact you and definitely to read that ebook. Um, I don't think I've read it, so I'm going to go check it out as well. So thank you. Thank you for having Salve me. Salve everyone. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Usman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.